0: Hey everyone. I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett
1: and I'm Juliette Starrett
0: And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast.
1: You got it, you better stop it. Mm.
0: This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Momentus. Look, if we delve back into all cultures, you're going to see that predominantly, the recommendations and the universality of those diets are cook your meat on the bone. If you're eating meat, cook it on the bone. And you're going to see that a lot of those cultures, basically all of them, eat all of the animal. That means they eat the connective tissue, they eat the skin. Because even though I don't like to do that, I understand what that's about. It's about getting enough connective tissue collagen in your diet. One of the things we've come to understand about how the body works is that the first adaptation to exercise is not that your muscles get strong, But that your body starts to reinforce the collagen structures, the support networks of that muscle. It makes sense. You have a bigger frame, then you can build the bigger engine. So, in short, all you have to do is eat tons of collagen all the time. The problem is most of us don't have access to that level of collagen, or we can't eat the bone broth or do that enough. So, I am a huge fan of adding vitamin C and collagen into your program. Why? Because it's about ligaments, it's tendon health, and it's about the structures of your musculature. It's about supporting all of the big engines. One of the easiest ways to do that is to supplement it. Our friends at Momentus have the best collagen on the planet with vitamin C already in there. So you don't even have to add it. You don't have to have the orange juice and the vitamin C. Lots of ways to get it through their products. I'm a huge fan. It's been part of my daily routine forever. To learn more, go to thereadystate.com slash Momentus. Now check this out. Use code TRS for 20% off your first order. Again, that's code TRS for 20% off your first order.
1: This episode of The Ready State is brought to you by Virtual Mobility Coach. This may sound crazy, but last year, I kind of tried to clone my husband. Awesome. Only kind of, though. You see, Kelly gets dozens of requests every day for help. And even though he wants to give everyone his personal attention, there just aren't enough hours in the day. So I typed in how to clone a human being into Google. Just kidding. But in seriousness, what we did do was create our virtual mobility coach platform. It's like having a virtual Kelly Star ad in your pocket.
0: Which obviously everyone needs. And that's right. I personally create over 600 mobility protocols for the virtual mobility coach. So the platform can help you with almost any movement problem imaginable. For example, let's say you're in pain. The VMC will show you a diagram of the human body. All you have to do is click where it hurts. And from there, we'll serve you up a customized pain prescription we call Mobility RX. The Virtual Mobility Coach can also help you warm up and cool down when you exercise. Every day, we provide fresh pre- and post-workout mobilizations for more than four dozen sports and movements. Plus, on your days off, you even have a video called Daily Maintenance to help you relax and recover so you can get back 100% in record time.
1: Best of all, right now, you can try Virtual Mobility Coach free for two whole weeks. So you can check out everything it has to offer without paying a penny. Claim your free 14-day trial of Virtual Mobility Coach now. Go to thereadystate.com slash free trial. That's thereadystate.com slash free trial. And we'll see you inside.
0: On this episode of the Ready State podcast, we are thrilled to introduce you to friend of the Ready State, Stuart McMillan. Coach Stu is the co-owner and CEO of Altus Track and Field. He's been a professional coach for over 28 years and has worked with professional amateur athletes in a variety of sports, all over track and field, and winter Olympic sports as well. His focus being on power and speed development, he's highly influential to my thinking about these crucial aspects of human function. He's personally coached over 70 Olympians at seven Olympic Games. This will be his eighth Olympic Games coming up, over 30 of whom have won Olympic medals. It's sort of bananas. Of all the Olympic coaches I know, he has the most (laughs) Olympic athlete medals in that group. He's humble about it, but it's impressive. Stu has worked as part of the national governing bodies in six countries and has been part of or led ISTs in the United States, Canada, and UK. That's integrated support teams, all the people that help support coaches and athletes. He's had the unique experience of coaching at three home Olympic Games, having worked in the, with American athletes in 2002 in Salt Lake City, Canadians in 2010, and with the British in 2012 in London. Most recently, he coached British sprinter Jody Williams to a sixth place finish and they're 400 meters at Tokyo. Stewart has been at Altus in Phoenix, Arizona, since 2013. They just recently moved the whole operation to Atlanta. Again, understand that Stu is one of my favorite coaches on the planet. He's part of my coaching pedigree, and I am thrilled to bring you this conversation.
1: Stu, welcome to the Ready State podcast. I just want to start by saying that this is the first time you and I have actually met although you and Kelly have known each other for an age. And I'm just wondering if either you or Kelly can talk about how you guys first got to know each other. Just the backstory a little bit. Do you guys remember?
0: Oh, boy. Man, no. (laughs) Uh, You know, when you separate two elemental particles at the beginning of the universe, (laughs) uh, or maybe that's too esoteric. Uh, There's a big bowl of milk and there's two Cheerios. Eventually, they're going to bump into each other through Cheerio magnetism. It's a phenomenon.
2: I think it's. Let me just say that. I think David Deutsch actually talks about chiral oh, really? magnetism in his oh, in his latest book. Yeah, it's yeah. a real phenomenon. Yeah,
0: maybe it's yeah. a law of affinity. It's hard to be. I think if you're a coach currently who's serious and you're not looking at track and field as our elemental roots of movement, of training. I mean, that's where most of our understanding has come through. It's impossible then, if that's true, to not understand the coaching lineage of Dan Pfaff and the coaches around him. And then that leads you right into Altus and the work done by you and your staff. So I think I've been Altus and Stu, Dan aware for a minute. I think that's where I became, and then I'm not sure what the next step was,
2: but I've been following your work forever. Yeah. Back at you before I comment on that. Is it Pfaff or PAF? That's a question I've actually never asked, Dan. Oh, I've boy. known Dan for... Kim Bassinger 30 years. Or
1: Basinger? Basinger or Basinger?
2: But you're German, right? So you are actually somebody I could ask this question of. Yeah,
1: that's true. What would be the correct... Pfaff? It'd be Pfeff.
2: Yeah. Pfaff. Like pfeffer.
0: Yeah. Haasen Pfeffer. Like Pfeffer. Yeah. But uh, at some point, someone um, came around and was like, might have been not Pfaff because they were trying to drop the... German, but I don't know. Yeah, maybe. At this maybe. point, I think I'm afraid to ask the master himself how to pronounce his last name.
1: Yeah, maybe after you've known someone for 20 years, it's a little long.
0: Just text him. Well, to, to just, I say it's coach. Maybe
1: that's, it's too late for that question yes. at some point. <laughs> yes. Okay, so moving yeah. on, Stu, sorry. Can you tell us, because I am not sure everyone in the audience knows, what is Altus? What is it that you are doing
2: and at Altus? What's your relationship to Altus? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. Finally, I've been a big fan of the pod for season. Was it season four you guys are doing?
1: I think so. Five, six.
2: Yeah, it's been a while.
0: You know, the syphilis has eaten my brain away, so I actually can't remember.
2: (laughs) And I'll be honest with you, I've been a little bit upset that I didn't get an invite until year nine or whatever. Year you're on, but that's okay. Uh, wait, wait, hang on. We're it's, gonna, actually we're gonna, it's actually better. I'll, I'll for you get over because
1: it. I wouldn't say we're great at this, but we are getting better.
2: No, you're really good at it. <laughs> you are really good at it. Kelly Commentary, is, is getting better.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> for everyone listening, <laughs> we'll get to some meat in a second, but we did try to interview Stu, and you were at the Olympics, Summer Olympics, and we tried to have you on, and we just couldn't make it work. So we did try to do some of that, because that's right. people don't understand, yeah. and I hope we can get into it, because we're staring down the barrel of an Olympics. I don't think people really understand what that means, and I have a couple of things I wanna follow up on on that. But anyway, please, start with, what is Altus? Yes. And who are you to Altus?
2: Well, first, I'm one of the co-owners, so I own the company with my two business partners, Kevin Tyler and Andreas Bain, and I'm the CEO, and Kevin is the president. And we bought the company from the founder of Altus John Gadina back in 2017. And we started off as a track and field company, um, and it was founded by John, who was a former elite throws athlete from the U.S. I think he's got two Olympic medals and two or three or four world championship medals. And he started this company back in 2008, where he identified basically a, a real lack of high-quality coaching in the throws, specifically in the U.S.
0: And by throws, you mean shot, discus, hammer, javelin?
2: Yeah, shot, discus, and hammer. Yeah, not jav. I think he just, uh, the the heavy throws, I think you call them. So, and also a real lack of quality coaching education in those events. So he started a company called the World Throw Center back in 2008. His dream was always to expand that into all the uh, other event groups and recruited myself and Dan Paff and a few others after the 2012 Olympic Games in London to come to a phoenix and build this big center this big track and field center which we rebranded at the time as world athletic center so we started off that way we had 120 full-time athletes with us in phoenix 14 coaches eight therapists total chaos absolute chaos i don't know if you came that year kelly but it was a lot of fun but it was totally chaotic we found out pretty quick that that chaos just wasn't manageable. It wasn't sustainable. And we dropped our numbers to 60. And now over the course of time, we've got 30 elite full-time uh, track and field athletes with us. But we started off as a track and field company and doing a little bit of education on the side, essentially. So a lot of coaches would always come to, whether it's the side of the track that Dan would be coaching on over the course of the last 20 years, or maybe over the course of the last 10 or 15 years with me, coaches would come and Visit and say hi and pick our brains, quote unquote, for a day or two or, or a week or whatever. So, we started to put a little bit of a structure to that and invite coaches out to Phoenix to spend a week with us. So, we started this coaching program and that really took off. So, what essentially started off as a track and field company that did a little bit of education on the side kind of flipped over the course of time. And we're now more of an education company that does track and field on the side. And we've really, we've gone in heavy on the digital space, you know, with using yourself and my buddy, John Berardi, and a few others as models of people who are doing this really, really well. And we've gone into that digital coach education space pretty heavy over the last sort of four or five years now. Yeah, that's about it. And then recently, very recently, we moved to Atlanta. We were in Arizona for nine years. It was long enough. (laughs) Hot enough. Long enough and hot enough. It's a long time to be in Arizona. You know, (laughs) I was ready to leave Arizona after three or four years. It's a great place for sprinters to train for seven months of the year. It's not a fun place for anybody to live for four or five months. And we got to that point where it just became harder and harder for us to recruit athletes to live there. It was harder and harder for staff's family to live there in the hotter months. It's easy for me, you know, during the hotter months in Phoenix, I'm usually in Europe or competitions around the world. So it's not a problem for me, but it just made sense for us personally and as a business to find somewhere else to be. So now we're in Atlanta trying to make a go of it here.
1: So I have like 50 questions about Altus, but you piqued my interest when you said that you met Dan at the 2012 Olympics. So I assume you were coaching there and had a pre-Altus life as a coach Can you tell us a little bit about that? And did you get your start as a competitive athlete yourself? Two-part question.
2: Okay. So I met Dan in 1995, a long time ago. I think I'd started coaching in 92, seriously. Like in 92, I figured, all right, this is what I want to do. And I was friends with a Canadian sprinter named Donovan Bailey, who was being coached by Dan. Donovan said to me one day, "If you're really serious about this coaching thing, you need to come down to Texas. My coach is pretty good." (laughs) So I got on the plane. I went down to uh, to Austin, Texas, where Dan was coaching at the time with a group of you know small group of athletes, maybe five or six, and spent three weeks there in 1995. And that just changed my entire life. I saw at that point, and I often say this is a blessing and a curse for me in the same way that. It was a blessing that I got to see elite, world-class coaching up front, and I could see, okay, this became sort of a lighthouse for me. All right, this is, this is what I want to be. This is who I want to be. This is how I want to do it. But it's a curse as I, I had to go back to Canada and try to do that by myself in a Canadian sports system in Calgary with a bunch of athletes who weren't at that level, with a bunch of people that weren't at the level that... Dan was working with down there so it was very very hard for me
0: and I, I want to jump in and just say for everyone who's listening this is really pre-internet and it's different the coaching sort of associations the drop in the transparency the good teaching that's happening connections it's really difficult to create that world-class coaching community i mean you had to do that from scratch
2: yeah i got lucky we definitely did have to do that from scratch and i was very lucky that i was based in calgary which as you know was host of the 1988 olympic games and from the legacy of those games, they built some amazing facilities and were able to recruit some amazing people to come and work there within the, what's now the Canadian Sports Institute. And at the time was the Canadian Sports Center. So there's some really, really smart sports scientists. There were some really, really good sports medicine people. And there was a really young and burgeoning group of super creative and super curious, strength of conditioning coaches in a world that didn't really even exist in Canada at the time. Matt Jordan came out of there. Nick Ward came out of there. Scott, Scotty Ma came out of there. I came out of there. Charles Poliquin was there at the time. Andy Barnett was there. It was a really, really rich environment to learn this trade. So I was super lucky, but you're right. There was no internet at all so when you know i'd go down to that first trip down austin texas was the first of four or five next four or five years i would go down there and any interaction i had with dan thereafter was a phone call and this is how i got to know dan is something we, we were joking about before i'd call up dan and dan is very very thoughtful super thoughtful and he'll pause between sentences like anyone you've never met anyone who could pause like dan (laughs) and when you're a young coach and you're on a phone call with somebody who's an old older coach who's a real mentor who's a real master and he pauses for 10 seconds in between sentences it's really uncomfortable (laughs) so that was that was my learning right is is he still there is he died i mean it's still like that to this day right but it's uh, over the phone that's super uncomfortable that was the way that which we'd learn right so you'd have a conversation with with dan and as you you probably know kelly those early days, I'd have a, an hour-long conversation. I'd take six pages of notes, and that would be the next two months of research for me. I mean, that was the power of really having a high-quality mentor like Dan Path was just was so important to the development of not only me, but hundreds of coaches around the world at the time.
0: And I will say that his coaching, I would even put myself as part of his coaching lineage. Like when I, People were like, how do you know some of this... What you know, and I'm like, well, let me show you where I've gone. And I've sat next to Dan, watching him coach. And just for everyone's listening, this is probably an exaggeration, but I'm not sure that there's a coach with more Olympic coached medals on the planet. Is that possible? You think? Then who? And Dan? No, I've got more than Dan.
2: You have more than Dan.
0: Oh, uh, oh I, I know that? I didn't even know.
2: <laughs> the two of you are are titans. <laughs> but um, I, you know, I cheat because Dan's mostly uh, summer Olympics, and I've coached a lot of winter Olympians. And it's way easier to get a winter Olympic medal than it is a summer Olympic medal.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I say take, smoke them if you got them. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I think is really important is as you guys have transitioned your incredible teaching staff and the resources from the mentorship program, which you've been doing, this is when I first contacted, I was actually in Phoenix working with a baseball team and swung by and just dropped in on a round table discussion which was just led by you and Dan and sort of had my mind blown. I was like, yes, I'll be there. Can I just shut up and sit for two hours
2: and listen? How, how did that go for you? Did, were you able to do uh, that? No. <laughs> no.
0: I got, I got put on the spot a few times too. Where, you know, And what's really fun is that um, I want everyone to understand that you are a coach who I have heard more self-doubt from around understanding process. I think I have a grasp on this, but I'm not sure. I think this year will be better in terms of my preparation, understanding of how people move, but maybe I'm just totally wrong. That's so complex. And I don't mean to throw this out like, you're not cavalier, that it's, you're trying to do a very complicated thing and replicate that complicated thing. And the humility around Altus is really profound. People ask really straightforward questions. There's a atmosphere of curiosity and it is the greatest coaching environment I've ever been in. Just as a participant person, that kind of curiosity is really unique. You can't tell who's the boss. You can't tell who's a lead. Athletes have big voice here. It's just, I think what I wanna make the point of is that, and I'd like you to talk about this, is that we are losing some of the generational knowledge of our coaches and Dan's institutional knowledge has now been sort of kept and codified in a way that other coaches like myself can avail
2: themselves of his experience. Am I right there? Yeah, I think you are. I, appreciate, I really appreciate that, by the way. We try to foster a really open, curious environment within our own staff, but even more so our athletes. And then I think that just shows whenever we're visited by any visiting coaches. They can see the curiosity at work. And out of curiosity comes that creativity and, and eventually the wisdom. I feel like the most curious people are always the most wise I put you in that list. I've got a few really good friends that I would say that, you know, these are some really super wise people. And it comes from their curiosity. It's yourself and John Berardi and, you know, our mutual friend, Rachel Balkovic. I mean, she's just a rock star and she's that way for a reason. She's now 32 or 33 or 34, whatever. She's so young, but she's so wise. I mean, she's got wisdom so far beyond her years. And it just comes from now what's 15 or 20 years of, being curious about what it is we're doing and why we're doing it. I got super lucky to meet Dan when I was 26 or something, you know, I'd I'd been already had a little bit of context. So I understood what coaching was, but I didn't know what it could be meeting Dan and seeing and opening my world to all of these things that coaching actually is. I thought it was pretty narrow, but understanding that, okay, coaching is everything, man. Everything that I've ever read since, Goes into my coaching brain. Every single thing that I read is okay. How does that relate to coaching? It's a problem. Just being in Calgary, as I said, and just being surrounded by these incredible people and all learning together at the same time, and we've just tried to continue that and foster that up until now. You know, the, the one thing that Dan was that I've seen from very few people around the world since then is this openness and transparency to his process. You can just stand there. He will tell you anything. And he'll tell you when he doesn't know the thing as well. You can ask him, why are you doing that, Dan? And he'll tell you. There's no secrets with Dan. We're kind of getting to figure that out now. There's more and more people being open with their transparency and open, hey, there's no secrets in high-performance sport. We kind of know that now. We didn't know that back in 1995. And in fact, I'd argue back in 2010, it was still really, really guarded. Everyone had their own little way of doing things and kept it to themselves. You know, I'm just so thankful that I wasn't brought up in that sort of way. I think that's one of the reasons, you know, going back to what we talked about before and how, we, how the two of us met, it's one of the things that drew me towards what you guys are doing. You know, it's open. Everything is open. All of it. And I love that. Absolutely love it.
0: I just wanted to be able to put Stu's mobility guy on my resume.
1: <laughs> okay, so I think you would be too humble to admit this. But it's obvious that you have created a really amazing culture for other coaches to learn and for athletes to get better. And obviously, Dan was a gigantic influence in sort of how you approach that. But what else? What are your other influences? Is it anything from your childhood or just sort of how you perceive the world? Or I mean, I think creating culture is so important to any organization. And you obviously are very good at it. What's the secret?
2: Yeah, I don't know if I am.
1: I had a feeling you were going to say that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> honestly, like I'm, I'm not saying that at being overly out of humility. I just don't honestly think that I'm that great at that. I just feel like we got a bunch of really smart and curious people together and we just do work and just try to get better at what we're doing. And I think the culture is just a, a result of that. It's not something we, okay. Do
0: you think people, that fits a certain kind of people that if, if it doesn't, if you're not ready to question foundations, it's just not for you. And it really is uncomfortable to be in an open environment like that. Yeah. Let I mean, me just be clear for people, there's structure, nothing is pell-mell, it's very intentional, but everything is open for negotiation if there's a better way. Yeah. Is that a correct way to say that?
2: A hundred percent. And I think there's a selection bias too, right? So whether it's the athletes coming in or the people that come and work with us or the coaches that come and spend time with us, they're all sort of that way anyway because they kind of know who we are and how we are and why we're that way. So we don't get surrounded by a lot of people who are very closed or very the opposite of what we are. So it's just kind of picks up a little bit of momentum and just gathers steam and it just builds over time. So I don't think there's anything that's, it's funny though. I mean, it's a really good question because I think the more and more that you manage staff, the more purposeful that you have to be about the culture. And especially the last three years when we're all remote, it's been so much harder. I didn't, ever think about it prior to covid we just did the work we just showed up we had a great time we I worked together had a rapport and whatever happened happened and it's awesome and now it's not it's way harder it's way way harder admittedly i don't think i do a very good job of it because i like the other stuff you know i like learning stuff and coaching and being creative and talking <laughs> to people i don't like building a quote-unquote building a culture purposefully so it's hard
0: you are ceo right? Yeah. How was that transition from going from head coach to now you're in charge of the health of the organization? Did you feel like you were prepared as, as a coach role to step into that sort of the executive role or have you had to stretch and has that made you a better or worse coach?
2: <laughs> yeah, really good question. I think initially it made me a really far worse coach because I'm essentially doing two full-time jobs now. And You can do it if you really know what you're doing with both of them. But (laughs) I don't know what I'm doing with either one of them. (laughs) I'm pretty comfortable with my coaching now, almost 30 years in. I'm still learning. I'm still trying to get better at it. But, you know, if we're truly lifelong learners, quote unquote, we are spending time trying to become better at what we're doing. We're never really settled and happy with it. So that's a full-time job for me. And then transitioning into now being a, you know, a leader of this organization and having needing to make enough money so we can pay people every two weeks. That's super challenging, man. (laughs) I mean, it's really, really hard. And I'd say for two years, my coaching suffered. So we bought the company in August of 2017. In 2016, I had, I think, 14 athletes at the Rio Olympics from 13 different countries. They won five medals. It was a great year for me as a coach because the athletes did well. I feel like I did a really good job of coaching in 2016. I feel like 2017 was my best year as a coach ever. I had three of the top sprinters on the planet. They were winning most of the diamond leagues. They were three of them, all three of them were in the top three in the world in their events. You know, I had a really good year. And then we bought the company. And 2018 and 2019, I struggled. I really, really struggled. And I tried to go about coaching in a different way. So, I don't know if you're much familiar with the sort of your typical English football Premier League manager system. So, often the manager isn't the one that does a lot of the coaching. The manager manages a lot of different coaches. It's like head coach in NFL, right? The head coach doesn't do a lot of the daily coaching, he relies on his position coaches and so on. So, in 2018 and 2019, that was what I thought I would transition to. All right, I'm almost 50. I'm now a CEO, an entrepreneur. I gotta make sure that we're still making enough money here that I can pay people. I don't know if I can do a good enough job of both of these things at the same time, but I have some really talented staff. And I feel like I can manage this staff in such a way where it can give me a little bit more time. So I started spending less time in the weight room, for example, I would rely on the strength coach to do the entirety of the supervision of the weight room sessions. I started spending less time at the table working on athletes or being a side jazz or one of the other therapists while he or she was working on athletes. And my coaching then just became just being at the track for the most important sessions. And you could probably guess how that went. <laughs> differently. maybe. I've got some really talented people, right? Really talented people. But at the end of the day, the athletes were moving to Phoenix to work with me and not the the talented people that were working with me, even though they were doing a great job. So it strained the relationships between myself and the athletes. It became more and more stressful for me as a coach to try to reignite these relationships. It really hindered my ability to try to learn how to be a CEO on the job. It hindered my ability to relate to the staff and manage the staff properly. And I'll be frank, I mean, we almost went under. We were almost seven figures, almost a million dollars in debt. It required a lot of soul searching and some real grinding, some hard, hard work between myself and some really good people for two and a half years to dig ourselves out of that debt and to figure out, okay, can I do this? Should I just go and coach somewhere? Or can this thing be sustainable, this thing, this Altus thing where we're trying to build this center for athletes to come and perform elitely and this education center that coaches can come and learn from us can this actually exist because it's never existed in track and field
0: no it doesn't exist
2: there's a reason why it's hard (laughs) it doesn't exist ever and you're not backed by a university or oh we're not backed by anything it's a for-profit company and we've got no sponsorship no nothing every you know every cent that we make goes back into the staff we've got to make sure that (laughs) you know we're paying the bills it's it's a real challenge yeah so to get back to your question i feel like three years after that, I started figuring out, okay, I'm getting better at this. So about 2020. And maybe that was partly due to COVID.
1: That certainly did in. not help. That cannot have helped. Sure. Well, it didn't help our business, <laughs>
2: <laughs> but it helped in the ability to, for me to manage my time because all of a sudden I don't have any athletes to coach. So now it's just about the business. And you know what? For, I don't know what it was like for you guys, but for four months, from March, April, May, and June, we were killing it because everybody's at home. Everybody's at home and they're wanting to educate themselves. And then we already had a platform and we had programs. So our the sales of our education programs were 10x for a couple of months. And we were, you know, we were,
1: all right, this is great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had a really good we're year older. in 2020 as well. Yeah, and- yeah you know, it was so hard for all of us to gauge, right? Like, can we keep up this trajectory? We're pretty sure we can't. We think it was a weird little blip in time, but man, it felt good to already be an online business that was established in that moment, right? Like we felt very lucky that we had done that transition. I mean, we'd had gone online basically in 2013, but, you know, we saw people in our industry just scrambling to think, oh no, I'm not online in any way.
2: 100%, 100%.
0: Let me ask you this, for you all, the Olympics are a big event. Some people may follow track and field in the Diamond League and sort of the international track and field scene, but a lot of people's exposure to track and field and some of these events, even like bobsleigh, is when you currently look have at you with there. Bob,
1: look at you saying bobsleigh like correct. a boss.
0: I've learned. Really? Are you going to say bobsleigh in America? We have to. You're in America, man. I know. Really? Bobslayer. Slayer. I think this is better. I just don't want to get in trouble with my international friends. The Olympics were shunted for a year every athlete i knew suddenly was caught in the middle of uncertainty every coach wasn't getting paid like it was chaos in the middle of your master program how did that go
2: yeah it was challenging so i used to coach a um a former bobsledder because he's american his name is steve messler and uh steve went to three olympic games and he uh, he finished his career with a gold medal in vancouver and then shortly thereafter he became a board member at the usopc so we had some insight into what was going on and what could potentially happen with the games that many other coaches around the world didn't and many of the athletes didn't so we were kind of ahead of the game we knew that these games weren't going to happen weeks maybe a couple months prior to everyone else at least we got a bit of a head start into okay what are we going to do we know that we're not going to be at this these games aren't going to happen so does that mean that we train all the way through anyway and get ready for the next year wow or does it mean that we take a break or does it mean that we send everyone home and let's not worry about it so at least it allowed us to be a little bit less reactive and a bit more you know we could plan ahead a little bit here so in, from that respect We definitely had it easier than many, but we are a very international group. We've got, as I said, you know, in 2016, when we had 120 athletes, so we're from almost 40 countries, 37 countries were represented in our roster. And even going into COVID, I think we had 27 athletes from 13 countries. And as you know, all of these countries have their own different COVID rules. So we had a few Chinese athletes, for example, that would go home or they went home. And they weren't able to leave their training center for six months. So they had the apartment within the training center. They had their canteen. So where they got the food and their training and that's it. Six months. They could not leave for six months. There were coaches. Is that a coach's dream or a coaching nightmare? Oh, <laughs> oh,
0: it's a night, absolute nightmare. It's like a
1: summer camp gone oh, bad.
0: Where you just don't even have humans anymore. You just have people who, right. you know, rinse, wash, repeat with an uncertainty of what's going to happen or not.
2: And, I think it was six weeks or two months, the first six or eight weeks of that. Because we still, at that point, didn't really know what was going on, right? These kids couldn't leave their room. So all their training was in their room. I'm sure you've heard the stories of people doing 5K runs around their living room couch. That stuff actually happened. (laughs) People were trying to train for an upcoming Olympics. that, At this point, they didn't know it was going to be canceled by training in their living room. (laughs) That is the most elite living rooms of, of all time.
1: Yeah, that's insane.
2: Yeah, it was insane. So yeah, it was super challenging.
1: So you obviously, well, I don't know if people know this, but you have coached, I think, something like 70 athletes. And as you said earlier, accumulated a ton of Olympic medals. And for those of us who are just fans of the Olympics, we don't really see at all what's going on behind the scenes with the coaches and what that's like. And I would love to just have you paint a picture for people listening to this, because I think it's this mysterious thing. There's this huge group of people that are there supporting athletes, and we never get any insight or view into what it's like for them.
0: To be a coach at the Olympics is as sexy as it gets, right? <laughs> it's, I mean, it's amazing. I think
1: that's the, probably the word he would use, sexy. <laughs> sexy.
0: And I'm being facetious. I understand the realities, and it's, yeah. I still want to go coach in an Olympics sometime. I offered to be yeah, could, Stu's coffee man. Like I'll yeah. just bring him espresso. Kelly also can, um,
1: he's really good at lifting heavy things, Stu. So if there's any lifting or carrying that would allow bags you to get him a credential, he'd be great at that.
0: But I have to be honest because I want you to answer this question. But as I have spent more and more time around elite sport, it's not what people think it is. Oh, the other is the Olympics the same way you think?
2: Yeah. I, you know, I often wonder what other elite sports are like. And mm. whether this is the experience, that what would F1 be like? Mm. Mm. You know, if I'm coaching in F1, is that what it looks like? Does it look like that? <laughs> or is it just, I'm picking the wrong sports? <laughs> Maybe it's that. <laughs> I don't know, man. Because <laughs> I know what it's like You're in- You're prof-
1: picking the not sexy sports. Right.
2: But I know the NFL is the same. NBA is the same. that's yeah, the same. Major League Baseball is the same. Hockey is the same. It's not a good job. Hard to be a coach. Like, it's, not. it's not. There's no sexiness about it. So I wonder if there's any sports out there that is actually sexy.
0: Which is more fun to coach? Winter Olympics, which you've coached a lot, or Summer Olympics?
2: Oh, summer. Yeah, summer. So the experience depends on two things. Where the games are and local organizing committee, how good of a job they've done at putting the games together. And number two, whether you are inside the bubble or outside the bubble.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So if you're an inside the bubble coach, you've got a credential that, Allows you to go ev- anywhere and you're inside the village. You're staying at the village. And if you're outside the village, you've got a credential, but you, it can only get you to the training and it can get you to the competition venue. And then you're staying outside the village somewhere. You're not staying within the village. Those are two very, very different things.
1: And I assume you've done both things.
2: Yeah, I've done both. Yeah. If I had my choice, I'd probably stay with outside the village, but it's so hard now from a security standpoint you really want to be inside the bubble the entire time. So you don't have to worry about it, but it's way more fun being outside. Cause then you can go about your life and you can have real food and get away from the games for a bit. Every games is very different as any athlete that's been to many will tell you. And any coach uh, will tell you, like for example, Rio, the Olympic village in Rio was about an hour and 15 minutes away from the stadium by bus. And I feel like I was, and it's, you know, it's a few years ago now, but I feel like I was on that bus at 9 a.m. every morning and returning back to the village about 11.30 p.m. every night. And I was at the venue so sexy all day. Oh, it was so sexy. It was super sexy. (laughs) Because you're not, you know, you might have a two hour or three hour break in the middle of the day, but you don't have enough time to go back to the village. So you just stay there. So you stay there with all the people having sandwiches and and apples. And then you get back to the village at 11.30 p.m. And you go to the cafe and eat a late dinner and then go to bed. And you do it again for the next 14 or 15 days. That's not fun at all. But in, let's say, London, I lived in London during the games. And I just stayed home and took a train in. And it was awesome because London did an incredible job of putting on the games. The whole city was just lit up. And it was just an amazing fun experience everything about it was great and sochi was actually pretty cool Sochi was inside the village they did a pretty good job the food was good the the russian people good coffee the coffee sucked <laughs> the, the russian people the, the volunteers were amazing which and, and they can play a, such a large role in the experience of athletes and coaches the volunteers people don't really appreciate that but if you've got a bunch of really good volunteers it can be so much more fun and The easy bit is the coaching bit obviously and the tough bit is just managing all those other distractions that go on during olympic games the athletes worrying about their families for example that's a big stressor because the families don't know what it's like so the families go there and they're calling the athletes hey i need to go here i need to go there and and, you know the athletes are trying to figure it out for them so it's
1: yeah Right, that's the side thing you don't think about, right? Like the athletes are trying to make sure their families can get into the, watch them, and they're managing all that in addition to competing in the Olympic Games, right? They're not just like living in a complete bubble.
0: Then, if you coach the marquee events, know the 100 meters, track and field, there's a whole order of magnitude of craziness that isn't laid on top of that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We've done a better job over the course of time. I've been to eight Olympic Games now, I think. Yeah, eight. And we do now with the Olympians, we have meetings with the Olympians and the family a couple months out. We have those conversations. So we, we do a better job of dealing with those distractions and pressures. But for especially first-time Olympians, it's challenging, you know, you know, sort of managing their expectations and managing their excitement and the levels of arousal for what could be their first two games. I'm, I'm coaching Kaylee Humphreys, as you know, who's going into her uh, fourth Olympic Games this weekend. the fourth or fifth? Fourth, 06, 10, 14, 18. Oh, fifth, yeah, you're right, fifth. <laughs> so she's going to her fifth Olympic Games. It's old hat for her now.
0: Kaylee is a mutual friend. Will you explain who Kaylee is and where we can find her?
2: Yeah, uh, Kaylee Humphreys is the number two ranked female bobsledder on the planet. She's a four-time Olympian, three-time medalist, two-time gold. She competed for Canada at the first four of those Olympics and will be competing for the United States at this Olympics. She's married to a uh, former American bobsetter and has lived in San Diego now for eight or nine years. So just just felt like she was more of an American than a Canadian at this point. So it's now going to be competing for the U.S. in 10 days. So it's uh, the U.S. have actually got the two best female bobsetters on the planet, Alana Myers-Taylor and Kaylee Humphreys. And they'll be both competing in the monobob and the two-woman bob. Fingers crossed that they'll come one, two in both of them. Should be fun.
0: The monobob is a brand new event. Will you tell us about it?
2: You know, for many years, Alana and Kaylee were at the head of the pack of trying to get another event in women's bobsled. Because the men have two men and four men, and the women just have two women, and that's it. By the way, women's bobsled only started in the Olympic Games in 2002. So they've only been there for five Olympics mm-hmm. so far, but it's only been two women. And so for a few years, Kaylee and Alana really tried to push towards getting four women in the Olympics. It was a really challenging and difficult thing because there's just not enough female bobsetters, especially from some of the smaller nations, to be able to put together a competitive field in four women. So what they decided to do a few years ago was to have a one-woman bobset. So they built these special purpose-built single Bob sleds. They weigh about 300 pounds, right? Yeah, I think they're more than that. I think they're 330. I think they're 155, 160 kilos, or whatever that is. Yeah, they're heavy. They're almost as heavy as the two-woman. And they just don't articulate. So where a two-man and a four-man bob articulate with the front and the rear runners are separate and there's an axle in between and there's an articulation point, the monobob there isn't. So you still drive it with the same apparatus as what's called D-rings in the front of these sleds and you drive yourself. But you also, you just push it yourself and you, and you jump in and you drive it yourself. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It should be really fun.
1: I can't wait. So I just had to tell you a quick story. Speaking of our conversation about things not being sexy, and that is that our little daughter, Caroline, is 13 and she was invited to train at a water polo camp at the U.S. Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. And she had a total ball, by the way, but I think she got a little bit of insight into Spartan way of life. <laughs> because she described her dorm as a glorified prison cell. And she went into it thinking the food, I think she thought it was going to be like a freshman dorm where she could eat like all the Fruit Loops she wanted. Or I don't know what her expectation was, but the food did not meet her expectation. So she loved the water polo part and the whole entire experience, but it was Spartan, I would say.
2: Spartan, I think, is a <laughs> From really... From
1: accommodation standpoint. Yeah,
2: I think that's a really good way to put it. And there's... but. Think about this. I mean,
0: Uh, I'm going to go with austere. Spartan has too many positive. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Austere.
2: (laughs) There are Olympic athletes that will live for years in that environment. You know, years, not not a week or two for a camp. Years. I feel like you know you you don't want to downplay the importance that Olympic training centers have for the development of some of the most more elite athletes. But uh, I would really love it if they were higher quality. If it's something (laughs) that you would actually enjoy living in or if the food was a better quality. I think we can do it so much better.
0: This brings up a really interesting piece. We know lots of Olympians who have an incredible Olympic experience and then retire and don't necessarily have health insurance or retirement or a, a skill set.
1: really any plan.
0: A plan, right? And I don't want to get into that here because if you, I look at your staff, I see a lot of former athletes who are like, oh, I'm part of this, which is one of my things. I'm like, oh, look how healthy this organization is. In CrossFit recently, I think it just happened, they just signed Monster, owned by Coca-Cola, and it's flipped the whole CrossFit community out. Is there suddenly like, oh, look at this, this is a health and fitness business. I'm like, the games are not a health and fitness business. The games are like a weird fitness Olympics. I feel like until athletes can make a living and their coaches can make a living, because you and I talk a lot about, personally, how do we create a professional class of coaches who can do that and have a family and retire someday, right? And it's interesting that you mentioned that the Olympic training centers, Olympic and Paralympic training centers are not necessarily great places. They don't get the kinds of funding that other countries get. And there's this real sort of push-pull between the economics and the capitalism of the Olympics and the disparity and resources of athletes and coaches. I mean, I feel like a lot of people get a lot of money and make a lot of money in Olympics and it's not coaches and athletes.
2: Yeah, I think the athletes get, I believe it's 4% of the money that is made through the Olympic Games. Oh, that much? Four. So compare that to NFL. What's the CBA? Is it 50 or 51 (laughs) or whatever it is the athletes get, right? I often do this thought experiment because there was a time in my life where I was working with a lot of professional athletes and a lot of amateur athletes, quote unquote, amateur being the Olympic athletes. And I could have gone either way. And I've got a few friends that went the professional route and I stayed the amateur route. And I feel for me, the amateur sport just connects with me better. I feel like the athletes are better. I feel like amateur sport, as you well know, is far more professionally run or far more professional at the sport performance end of it, the supporting end of it of who supports amateur sport. Coaching quality is far higher. The quality of all of the people that align with it within the support structure is far higher, generally. I was more interested in that than I was in making money. And many others are, right? I'm not complaining. But I often wonder that even to this day, I mean, I see some of the performance directors in some of the professional sports around the world really well-paid, super well-paid. So there is money out there for high-quality coaches in many arenas. It's just not an amateur sport at all. We talk about the IOC and the corruptness of it a lot, but I just don't feel like it's ever going to get better until we come up with a different solution than the IOC. The IOC needs to be ran out of town. Somebody else needs to come in, blow the whole thing up, start again, because that's not working. That system doesn't work. It's, It's just far too corrupt. There's far too much money in there for any of it to change. At every single level and none of it gets to the athletes and none of it gets to the coaches it would drive me crazy if i thought about it for too long <laughs> I, I, but I, it's frustrating let's just put it that way it really is and you really it zeroes me on you know, me in on and, and a lot of other people in on what's really matters and what is truly important is the the performance the health and the lives of the young people that we're trying to guide through this process but the challenge is more and more after eight Olympics, when you've seen behind the curtain, when you know what the system is. Are oh, the sausages is made. It's not to allow that to color how the athletes are feeling about the whole thing. It's hard.
1: I feel like in these times, we don't need to get political. I'm actually going to ask you a question, but in these times where people are so politically divided and... We have so many struggles in that way. The Olympics are like one of those few things where it's like, everybody loves the Olympics. We can all come together and there's this unity thing. But right behind the scenes is this crazy corruption and athletes aren't supported. And so it's sort of an internal struggle of, is this a terrible thing or an awesome thing? Is it unifying? Is it bad? All right, I'm going to totally turn directions here. We are huge fans of John Berardi. I have taken quite a few of his courses. He's been on this podcast. How did the two of you connect And what are you doing together in partnership?
2: So ScienceLink was his first website when he first went online in 1999, I think. And I found him through how the same way that almost everybody found him through T Nation or what was T Mag at the time. Was it T Mag or T Nation then? What is it now? Whatever it is now. I remember T Nation, but yeah. Yeah, it's the opposite of that. So I said, man, this guy's pretty smart. I like this guy. And so reasonable. So, oh man, well, he wasn't as reasonable back then. He's super reasonable <laughs> now. But a guy named Dr. Steve Norris, who was a physiologist at the Canadian Sports Center in Calgary, and he's one of our mentors. He was uh, Matt Jordan's supervisor for his PhD, or for his master's anyway, maybe not his PhD, but a super, super smart guy. He brought in JB for a week to work with, I think the speed skating team back in 2000. So we connected then, it's either 1999 or 2000. And ever since, I would bring him out to work with the bobsetters. And as soon as I had any sort of position of power and any sort of uh, control over anything to do with budget, I'd get JB involved because JB's one of, honestly, he's one of the smartest human beings on the face of this planet. He's got so much wisdom, it's sickening to me. But he's become a really, really good friend to the point where four years ago, he came down to Phoenix to spend six months of the year in Phoenix. So we, we can sort of hang out more. I mean, not he didn't come to Phoenix specifically and only to, to spend time with me, but it was, that was the reason why he first started coming to Phoenix because we were there, right? So it's, and then uh, two years later, we, we, we all up and leave and he's still there. So it's a bit of a, bit of a shame from that perspective <laughs> and um, a shame where at this point in time, we haven't done anything together. I'd really, really like to do something with JB. I got him doing things with the athletes I was coaching over the course of time for probably about a decade before PN blew up, like really blew up. And that's performance nutrition for everyone.
0: Precision. Precision, Sorry, of course. Precision, nutri- precision nutrition. nutrition.
2: <laughs> yeah, precision nutrition. Yeah, so it's, he had an interesting inflection point, right? It's, do I go down this elite athlete road or do I go the gen pop road? He spent a decade in elite sport. So he know he's looked, you know he knows how the sausage is made he said i'm not interested in that i'm just not interested and just went only to um gen pop started pn with that in mind and it's obviously killed it and then sold pn or sold a, a vast majority of his uh ownership in pn three years ago and now is looking for you know what's next for him and we've talked about that a lot and i'd love to do something with him and jb if you're listening Let's have a chat, man. Let's have a chat and let's do something. Like JB,
1: if you're listening, I'm right over here in Atlanta.
0: It's interesting that you mention how often people cut their teeth in on the bleeding edge of sports performance, human performance. JB, for example, we have a hypothesis that one of the reasons, sports matters for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is that we can really take, it can be our lab and it can be the place where we use science and that model of thinking to derive better practices, good practices, that we can then apply and try to transform society with, right? And I feel like you guys really live up to that, you and your staff, in terms of saying, here's what we know about the best ways to teach people, the fundamentals of human movement, running, jumping, and throwing. And then you're like, hey, and here's how you would apply this backwards towards high schools, track, you're a coach wanting to learn the basics of all those things. How are we doing in that promise? Because I see a lot of the. I was thinking of Ian McCown has recently left. David Joyce is now trying to say, "Hey, I've learned this thing in this high performance world. How do I go back and transform society? How are we doing taking those lessons of high performance and transforming back? Is it working, or are we missing a step? Are kids better prepared and better coached, or is the environment too messy still? Is there too much noise around nutrition and now?" Social media and sedentariness. What's going on? Give us a grade because you're sort of sitting at the top of the pyramid, seeing the people coming through the program, and that's culture, society. Is there a change happening, and are we living up to our promises, coaches?
2: Yeah, I, I think it's both. Yes, I do believe that there's many people doing this better and in better ways. You know, you obviously are, are a great example of that, and the people that you guys influence. Are great examples of that. And there's a lot of people doing incredible things. But I do also think that the chaos and the noise that's just increasing over time, our increasing inability to actually think critically about anything from a societal standpoint, is making it harder and harder and harder. Because all that is doing is just opening up this binary black or white type thinking that just permeates everything in society, including sport, performance, health, whatever it is around that. So it's becoming harder and harder and then harder and harder for people to seek out the people that are actually doing good work. So I find on a whole, I think we're probably doing worse. I don't know what you guys feel, but I feel like from the outside, looking at the rest of this is far more knowledge than there ever has been. We have a far greater understanding of what it means to be a healthy, well-performing, high-performing human being on this planet. But are we healthier and more high-performing? Clearly we're not, right? We're not.
1: Yeah, I mean, no, my take on it is that we've done a good job making the best people better and that we've also done a good job making the people who have sort of a personal interest in or a proclivity towards taking care of their health and wellness. I kind of hate that word, but we've made those people better, but that's just this little sliver of people Mm. and the rest. There's too much noise and too much chaos. And people are like, I've tuned it out or I can't deal, or I don't know what to do. I know I should do things. So that's kind of where my brain is on it.
2: Yeah. I mean, going back to what JB again, right? So JB had that realization as well, where he said, you know, I'm working all this time and doing all this hard work and this you know, doing all this research and I'm just doing a better job of affecting this tiny little population of people that are already into it anyway. I need to get to that vast amount of people that don't know that they need this, that everyone knows, you know, the the analogy he gave was everyone knows the difference between an apple and apple pie. But knowing the difference doesn't stop you from eating the apple pie. (laughs) So how do I then get people to eat apples and not apple pie? And that's off of that question, PN, exploded, right? That was their niche. That's what they figured out, how to get people to eat apples and not apple pie. And it was all about transformation rather than information, right? So it's, yeah. it's for me right now, we're still sorting through all of this information, the giant population is. We're not really being transformative about any of it.
0: We worked with the uh, England national soccer team, football team, Bob Slay last year. Ben Rosenblatt is there. PhD, brilliant coach, really just a genius. And one of the things that I really liked him saying was that he was seeing that there was a next generation of young kids who weren't just football phenoms and spoiled millionaires. They were really dedicated to understanding durability. How do I extend my career? How do I impact backwards? And they were really pushing the organization. I simultaneously seen someone like Nick Gill of the All Blacks who realizes that The things that the all blacks do affects all the clubs down all the way to the child's clubs that it's still worth it's worth the grind at the top and we are seeing change but it's a long game i don't know what the answer is to that piece and how grade we're giving ourselves
2: yeah i think the grade that you would give yourself or society if you're in new zealand would be very different than what we would give here in america (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> it's a much smaller system. I think that's a fair point. And so it's, it's significantly, I don't want to downplay the ease of this, but it's significantly easier to affect a system in New Zealand than it is different. in America. Very different. Yeah. As yeah. it is in the UK as well. We have some very significant America-centric challenges here that nowhere else on the planet does. I really worry. I don't have the answers. I really don't. That's why I, I look for you guys. A couple quick questions. I'm creeping up on 50. Should I be sprinting? Yes or no? No. Should adults sprint? No, you're too old and too big. And <laughs> too,
1: <laughs> too old and too big.
0: If I wasn't old and big, because I see this lack of running quickly, for lack of a better word, because a lot of people aren't going to sprint ever. They're just going to run more quickly. There's a dearth. There's a vacuum of that in people's lives.
2: Yeah. I don't think older people, grown-ups, should sprint. I think they should run fast and there's a difference, right? If you look at the gait across the velocities, you've got walking gait, you've got a jogging gait, you've got a running gait, which is just a little bit faster than jogging. You've got a striding gait, which is now probably what you're talking about. And you've got sprinting. Yeah. So if I were to go out and sprint, say I would be warm up for an hour or let's say half an hour (laughs) and then sprint. That's where we are now. I'm tearing my hamstring. Guaranteed, and so (laughs) will you. (laughs) You can do all of the Stu's (laughs) mobility coaching that you want, and warming up as you like, and then you go out and sprint maximally for five by fifty meters. You're you're not coming out of that well. So what we're talking about probably is striding, yeah, probably bringing a bit more intensity to some of the work that we do. So rather than only going out and jogging, and we just do three by five mile jogs or walks or whatever three days a week. I think that we should do something a little bit more intense. Even if I was just running and I picked up the pace
0: for 10 meters, something like that.
2: Yeah, that's one way to look at it, right? I mean, like you just jog in you're out for an easy jog, and let's say every minute you did a 10 meter little burst where you just stride at a little bit more intensity, and then you walk for another minute, and then you jog. And something like that I think is better than just going out jogging. I think we need to bring more intense movement across the board to all of the stuff that we do including running and including the stuff that we do in the weight room so i feel like there is opportunities there to run faster not necessarily sprint unless sprinting has been a part of what you've been doing for a few decades prior to that so for you kelly i'd start you off just do a little 20 minute warm up and then just do some progressively faster 30 meter strides and then go ahead with the rest of your workout for the day
0: Wrapped in bubble tape in a pool—is that what you're saying? All of those things, like, uh, like really, so, ing- so I don't have to contact the ground violently. Is that is that part of the magic?
2: You've got an alter G there, don't you? Just do it. Just do the G. <laughs> We have ten.
1: Okay, so Kelly has—he said two questions, but I'm going to interrupt a second question because I just want to ask. A rumor has come to me that you really enjoy a nice watch. And there's someone else that may be here that also enjoys a nice watch, so I'm wondering if that's actually why you guys found each other and became professionally friendly—is this watch thing? And if you could tell us a little bit about this. It's not just watches.
0: And I I don't own many watches, but it's a nice watch. I
1: wasn't talking to you.
2: And coffee. I wasn't even talking to you. On coffee.
1: I want to hear what Stu has to say for himself.
2: I'd always liked Kelly. We'd met a few times, (laughs) and we'd spoken quite a few times. And then I saw him in one of his videos and he was, had this cool black and blue Bell and Ross on. And I fell in love instantly. <laughs> instantly. It was, more than, it was more than just a man crush at that point.
1: You have no idea how happy Kelly is right now. Like <laughs> Kelly is going to literally see this. He, you can't see it if you're just listening, but Kelly has his happiest smile on his face right now. I would now. say
2: crap eating grin. It's deep happiness. I told him immediately and he said that you bought it for him for his 45th or 40th or something. 40th. 40th, right? Yeah. So it's, and then immediately I fell in love with you as well. (laughs) Um, And so this is, this is, this is an awesome, like I love both you guys for that.
0: I guess I want to just want to tell people, this is a dumb thing, but I've been in enough rooms where high level coaches, owners of organizations, crazy billionaires, everyone's wearing sneakers and joggers. And everyone looks at your wrist. It's the only way they're like, oh, look, he must be a good coach. He has a decent watch He's not wearing a Timex. Like, honestly.
1: Which I think is funny because you guys are coaches. So everyone would think that coaches have some like digital. Like I was talking to Stu before that I have this Garmin where I can track 97 different data points that many of which I don't understand. But not you guys. You guys just old school.
2: Yeah. I don't even know what a Garmin is. Old school. Yeah. That's terrible. Okay. Real quick. You're understanding
0: why I can pick Stu's brain hours and hours and hours, and our text exchanges are amazing. My favorite game is Stu just throws a, a picture of an athlete. He's like, what do you see? And I'm like, oh, man, how many, <laughs> how many ways can I get this wrong and lose the respect of my friend? It's really a fun, it's a fun game. <laughs> you already hinted at that Altus has an incredible foundations course, but you also have an incredible rehab. What would you call that course for, for coaches and athletes right now?
2: Yeah. So we kind of coined it. So one thing I learned from Dan from the get-go and what was, I'd never seen anywhere else on the planet at the time. I got to the track in Austin in 1995 and there was two tables by the side of the track. By the side of the track, next to the runners. By the side of the track. Yep. Next to the runners as where they were warming up. Dan was on one of them and a therapist on the other one. And they would watch people move And then after doing whatever it was that they were doing during this movement, part of the warm up of our sprint or whatever, if the coach had seen something or if the athlete had felt something, they'd come back to the table and the coach would make some sort of input generally, or the therapist would make some sort of input. And then they would send the athlete back off again for some type of movement and this iterative nature of this whole entire system. So it wasn't just practice started coach stood by the side of a track with a stopwatch timing runs and then coaching and then practice finished it was this interaction between the coach the therapist and the athlete all together trying to figure out this puzzle this human movement puzzle trying to improve the very skillful movement of sprinting together that was the biggest thing that i took away was this triad the coach athlete and therapist triad, and the importance of this, and then going home to Canada and trying to implement this within our own practice for the next 20 years. And we coined a term at the time called performance therapy, which was essentially doing therapy to aid in performance. So, not rehab, not rehabilitative after an injury, not prehab, trying to get people better prior to doing something, not recovery or regeneration. So, just Increasing the speed or the way in which they recover from a session, but within the actual session itself. So we coined that, as I said, performance therapy. And then uh, about a decade later, when myself and Dan and Jerry Ramajita and Gordon Bosworth and a few others were all in the UK working with UK athletics from 2009 until 2013, we started talking about all right, we need to put some structure to this performance therapy. Because by that time, we see a lot of people around the world now with tables beside whatever environment that they're training within, whether it be the track or whatever. But they weren't doing, quote unquote, performance therapy. They were just moving the table beside the track and just doing therapy. (laughs) So there's a big difference. So we said, okay, we're going to put this down on paper. We're going to make some sort of educational program. We didn't know what it would be like at the time. But five years later, we came up with what's called the performance therapy course, the Altus Performance Therapy Course with Jazz Randawa, Dr. Jazz Randawa. Brilliant. Yeah, he's absolutely brilliant. He's the, the uh, head of medicine at Sacramento Kings. Dr. Jerry Ramajita.
0: Jerry is uh, currently at the Warriors,
2: everyone knows. Yeah, uh, Jerry's at the Golden State Warriors. And Andy Burke, who's at the Orlando Magic, and Dan and myself. And I know you were involved in the project and we had a lot of super smart people involved in building this incredible course that ended up just being a behemoth. (laughs) (laughs) Turns out it's not a very complex system, right? It's so easy. As you guys know, right? I mean, Push here, run faster. Yeah. It's the hardest thing is to edit these things down into a way in which just we want to get across what we want to get across, but simply. So it's 220,000 words and 48 hours of video. And that's the course. So it's the size of basically three books and a week's worth of videos. So it's too big. So our project, the last six months, has been to sort of rewrite this thing in a much more practically applicable way in which people just can go through it in a week or two and get from it what we're trying to put across. And and I'll tell you, I mean, you've been probably... You guys have been the biggest inspiration on this. You guys, people don't know this and people haven't heard the words performance and therapy together before and in performance therapy. That's what you do. That is what Kelly Storrett has done since his very first video on YouTube 10 years ago, whenever it was. It's that's performance therapy. It's confusing. People don't understand. Yeah, they don't get it. That's the integration of movement and some sort of therapeutic input. And then giving people or other people their directive that they are responsible for their own is super powerful. It really is. So I I really got to give you the props on everything that you've done in this space for so long.
0: Good job, Jay.
1: Good job, you. Stu, it is so fun to talk to you. And where can people who want to learn more about Altus and the work you're doing and take your courses and your writing, Writing <clears> and one of my favorite where, things. Where can people find you and learn more on the internets and otherwise?
2: Yeah, I need to get back to writing. I've been so busy with these freaking courses the last few years. I need to get back to writing for myself. But um, yeah, Altis So it's A L T I S dot World because dot com was gone and all these other dots. So we're dot World. Sorry for that. I'm on Twitter at Stuart McMillan One. So Stuart McMillan One, and Instagram at Fingermash and uh, Altis is, is Altis across all of the social media.
0: Finger, that's right, finger mash. And definitely give Stu a follow because uh, it's so much richness. It's like a little daily dose of understanding <laughs> how people move and it's great. I mean, I really, it's one of my favorite things as a coach to be able to just drop in and be like, oh, I don't understand anything. That's great. I appreciate <laughs> you, man.
2: I appreciate both of you guys so much.
0: Thank Stu, you so much, Thank you Stu. so much,
2: man. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show.
1: Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State.
0: Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it.